Welcome to the Track House, presented this morning by Linden and True Coffee. I'm Mario Fraioli, host of the Morning Shakeout podcast. We're going to do a 30, 40 minute episode here. Uh, it's myself, good friend Knox Robinson. Yes. Of Black Roses, New York City. Knox ah! is uh, Knox, the first time guest on the podcast, second time interviewee. Uh, for the morning shakeout, and we're going to talk about a lot of things here this morning from the Boston Marathon and what's going on this weekend to your recent trip to Ethiopia and Kenya, where you got to spend quite a bit of time with some of the best distance runners in the world. Um, a gaggle of them, a gaggle of them. Shout out all Boston Marathoners here at the Trackhouse. We're super stoked to be in the building with uh, like-minded like-minded folks this is this is awesome well i'm uh, i'm super excited to welcome you to the morning shakeout podcast so thank you for coming on the show here live from boston first ever live edition of the morning shakeout podcast um let's talk a little bit about this weekend black roses new york city you have quite a presence here how many of you, uh, how many of your squad are here in town racing the marathon on monday this this is a, this is a special year for black roses i mean we're a, we're a I will have a ragtag program, just kind of getting it in in the streets of New York City. And what started off as one, two, three guys um, a few years ago. Now we had 15, 16 people qualify for the race uh, this year. We'll have uh, 14 or 15 line up on the day. So it's... Um, it's, it's been an exciting run, no pun intended. But uh, also, what's exciting is we were delivering nine women to the starting line in Hopkinton. And, and you know, um, I really got to give credit to the women who were involved in the program early on, two or three years ago. Um, one of my, my co-captains, Daniel McNeely, and we were sitting around, you know how it is at the environment out at the, at the starting line. The weather was warm. It was on its way to being hot. And, um, but the guys were sitting around basking in the ambiance and sort of um, feeling full of ourselves that we had made it this far. And Danielle just gets an expression on her face and she just says, oh man, this is, this is messed up. And I was like, no, don't worry about the heat. Just make sure you hydrate. Don't go out too fast. She's like, no, I'm the only woman here from the squad. And it's you four or five guys. And I was like, oh yeah, well, I guess it's on you. Let's get some women out here. You know, two or three years later, we have like nine women on the starting line. So I couldn't be more proud to to um, to shout out uh, the the women from Black Roses NYC who are lining up, and also the squad who have traveled um, from hither and yon to to show up to support. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the squad. I mean, you've told me in the past that we are not a running club. Hey, you don't like that word, uh, running club. That's we're a jogging a, club. You're a jogging club. <laughs> we're running, a lean, lean jogging club. Running, running clubs for the guys in short shorts running around, which sometimes you do. But yep. what, what is Black Roses New York City? Black Roses, uh, it's it's a it's a it's a collective of well, let me rip off uh, Hunter S. Thompson. It's a it's a collection of uh, God's own prototypes. Um, that's kind of the only way to really describe them. It's a collection of of uh, wild individuals um, who have found themselves at the intersection of New York City street culture and um, a love for digging deeper into the magic and the mystery of long distance running. Um, that's a fate I wouldn't wish on anybody <laughs> because um, it truly is a, a, a transfigurative journey. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a group of people 30, 35 people in New York City who meet up two or three times a week and and, and, and get after it on the training level. And so it has the, the, the trappings and the format, say, of like a, 
the traditional running program, um, and yet uh, that's probably where the comparison ends. Where are they coming from? What are the backgrounds of a lot of the members of Squad of Black Roses, and how does that differ from other groups that are out there? Um, <laughs> whereas a lot of running groups, at least in New York City, are 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 uh, filled with. Um, the moneyed beneficiaries of inherited wealth and, and work down on Wall Street, um, destabilizing developing nations and, and even indeed our own country. Um, Black Roses members are um, out-of-work bartenders, um, creative professionals in air quotes, um, you know, perpetual headhunter liaisons, um, sneakerhead aficionados, uh, just general up, we have some uh, high-class barbers in the squad, um, and uh, basically, I don't even know what everybody does. Like, I've never asked anybody what they do. They just come out and run, get treated like meat, and then like go home. So that's it's not really about what people do and where they're coming from. It's about where they're at. And you're founder and leader of the squad. What do you do? What is what is not Robbins to do? I think that's a that's a question that a lot of people are wondering about out in the running world. They've seen you through the social medias and otherwise. Yeah, um, I like to say I'm a writer. I'm a writer. Uh, it's it's my it's my first love, um, and I think running and running culture is a vehicle for expression for me right now. So um, while curating the Black Roses experience is a, is a chance to bring together um, a concatenation of, of these values. Um, it's also an opportunity to, um, to project my own particular view or my own sensibility of what I think running and running culture looks and feels, looks and feels like. And this idea of running culture is something that you are promoting, that you're writing about through all of your work, through the Black Roses, through the various places that you've visited. I don't want to ask you to define it, but what is this idea of running culture to you? What does it mean, in well, a sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I, if you check it out now, it, it doesn't, it almost seems like um, a garden variety term, but, you know, even a few years ago, you would never put the, the two words next to each other, running and culture. Um, running, obviously, is previously mentioned was the, the purview of these sepia tone images, you know, from our, our archives and, and culture obviously was Napoleon Shagnon down with the Yanomami in the uh, Amazon River Basin. But again, uh, if you look at the history um, and indeed the, the present day um, frame of running that we all uh, celebrate and, and, and fall in love with, it does have its own tenets of culture that are created and, and uh, created organically and are perpetuated by the individuals in that culture. So several years ago, I just started really digging on the idea that these uh, ideas and these values that we share as runners may be passed, maybe riffed upon, but ultimately, like, passed on to, to other runners and hipping people to that and and turning future generations on to, to that idea of the culture. 
And what do you see going on in running culture today? I mean, with Black Roses and some of the places that you've been, like this idea of like urban running crews popping up all over the place, certainly in New York City uh, and worldwide. I mean, you guys were just over in Valencia for World Half Marathon Championships. I know you took a bunch of people out to Berlin last fall. There are other squads out there. Like, let's talk a little bit about the rise of these urban running crews and how they fit into today's running culture. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. We're here... Uh it, it's, it's amazing to be here on Newberry Street, just a, a few blocks from the finish line of the Boston Marathon. It's 122nd running. You know, and, and, and it's great. So many people have gone to the expo and have picked up their bibs. You know, Boston um, almost exclusively is um, a marathon you have to qualify for with a, with a time that you've trained for and run. Um, and yet, there's so many people here now celebrating um, in the spirit of the weekend. You know, you wake up this morning, and I checked on Instagram, and um, the, 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 the running group Black Men Run from Brooklyn are out in Mattapan doing a Boston Marathon hood run that they call. So there's this, like, ten brothers out, like, wildly referencing the Boston Marathon and doing their own 5K, 10K this morning, just celebrating the culture. So it's not, it, it's gone from um, the amazing legend of, of Boston Billy and... And, and Joe Kelly and, you know, um, Catherine Switzer and Ted Corbett. And now it's just being embraced by people who might not even ever line up in Hopkinton. And, and that, again, is endemic of culture. And what does that do for the sport of running as a whole? Does it help support it? Does it help diversify it? Do you think it strengthens um, you know, this, you know, this idea of, of running as a, as a sport and something that people are, are competing in? I mean, the main, the main goal is just to sell a lot of sneakers for sneaker companies so they get rich and then we don't. Like, the main idea for running is just to sell shoes. That's, that's what I hope. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but no, I mean, like, really, if we are improving our cardiovascular health, if we are rewriting our bonds of connectivity as communities and as people, if the city of Boston is... Um, perpetually able to see itself in a different way every new marathon season, that's incredible. And if other cities are inspired and other cities connect, if other if there's people here who, you know, are maybe kicking a, a, a drug or alcohol addiction or throwing off like a family legacy of, of heart disease and other lifestyle diseases, if people here just want to like get out of their job or their dead-end relationship and want to start putting one foot in front of the other and maybe run a marathon, it's tough to hope for anything more than that. If, if, it's, if it just increases um, in aspiration and inspiration, I don't know, man. It, it's, it's tough to, to really want to do more than that. And I know that's not how to sell sneakers, <laughs> but that's what feels good in the heart. Let's switch gears for a little bit. I want to talk about you and specifically your Instagram account, First Run, which you started, I believe, in 2012, if I'm not mistaken. Talk about the impetus behind First Run and what you know, what the words themselves, First Run, mean and what they represent in your work. Yeah, I started First Run um, in, in 2012. Um, in, a, in a previous life, I was the editor-in-chief of The Fader Magazine, which is a... Um, independent music magazine coming out of New York City that really looks um, at, at all world music, but primarily hip-hop, indie music. Um, 
Yeah, I'd spent, after being editor of the Fader, I'd spent some time in the music business just kind of on sabbatical getting in trouble <laughs> with uh, with rappers and <laughs> and skinny jean bands. But um, around 2011, once I saw the running boom that we're currently enjoying, once I saw this running boom taking off, um, I really, the, the magazine guy in me kind of kicked into gear. And so I spent like a hundred grand just like <laughs> putting together the pieces for a, a super expensive lavishly produced running magazine that was inspired by like monocle purple magazine it was going to be a very like loose rich fans magazine because i rather erroneously thought oh these olympians are in high altitude training camps and they're sitting back in like hot water tubs living the good life, all they have to do is jog every day and eat the best food, that's a good pitch to like a rich dude, like yo, here's a hot tub, here's some lobster, here's just jogging twice a day, so, in short short, so that's what the magazine was going to be, um, spent all my money on it, and then, like when it came time to push the button to like, send it to the printer, I was like, well, Instagram is more fun, so... <laughs> I now have like 80% so. of a magazine just on a hard drive. And, uh, and, you, and you blew all your savings up. Yeah, gone. Um, and so I've just been uh, having a good time on Instagram ever since. So first run, um, although it does sort of like highlight my own exploits, it does also look to tell the stories of other sort of interesting personalities on the running scene. What are you personally interested in right now? I like... I'm on the left, man. I like uh, looking at left field running culture. I like people doing things in a different way. I like to meet people that I don't even know their real names. I just know their trail handle and, and go into LA and, and meet a brother and be like, yo, take me out into the desert. Let's run and like go get lost in, in the desert with like an interesting personality as much as I like to, you know, track down Olympic gold medalists and needle them for any insights that they might offer. I mean, both are actually pretty challenging to do. I mean, along those lines, you just spent a few weeks in East Africa, in Ethiopia at first, you spent some time with Mofara, uh, Abdi Abdurrahman, like that whole mundane team, most of them are training for, I mean, Abdi's running here in Boston, but most are training for London. Um, what was that experience like, and what did you learn from it? Um, you know, it's funny, like, in, in core running, in, in where the, again, the establishment, the, the brands, and the coaches, and the federations, and, like, all the people who are benefiting from the efforts of runners, <laughs> they think it's about, like, the workouts and like the little numbers on the paper and the records it's not like being out there with those guys was was pure lifestyle the entire time i was in ethiopia nobody ever emailed me texted me sent me a dm on instagram nobody ever once asked me about a workout this is mo fair he's won four gold medals like nobody asked me what he did what he did, what he did on tuesday morning Anybody only wanted the recipe for the peanut butter tea that you drink at the hotel. Like I'm still getting hit up like, yo, fam, you better post that recipe or else I'm going to get it. So, you know, people want to know about culture right now. Like, you know, everybody out here has probably suffered through Yasso 800s before they found out it's not really a marathon indicator. 
but not everybody is tasting peanut butter tea. So it's like <laughs> the, the culture element of that is, is actually ascending. And that's really what's exciting. I mean, I was watching Mo and, and Abdi and Bashir, all these guys, you know, in Mo's camp, he's got four or five Olympians just like walking to the track in the morning as his home. Like, they're just like... Yeah, I was like... His entourage. Yeah, the entourage was like all Olympians. Like, it was super crazy. I was watching this insane workout, and, you know, it's, it's ending up with him, let's just say basically he's running like four-minute miles at the end while and not whatever. Halfway through the workout, first of all, on the easy runs, the easy runs are done in complete silence. It was like military precision. And they just go out seven, 12 miles, whatever, not talking, just flowing on the dirt. When it came time for the track workouts, he's playing a Drake playlist off of the speaker on the track side. And halfway through the workout, he says, hey, mate, would you mind going in my bag and getting my iPhone 10 out? The security code is such and such and such and such. Would you mind taking photos and videos of me so I can post later? And I was like, you want me to go in your bag open your phone, and then film you while you're just running like to prepare for the London Marathon. So the idea that it's about creating a vibe in your group and the energy and the, the camaraderie and the lifestyle really caught me off guard, really, more than anything. What similarities did you see in those groups out there versus like what you have in New York City with Black Roses and what you've seen amongst other running groups that you've been around throughout your career? Um, it, it's self-serving to, to draw uh, lines of connectivity between black roses and we see it. But setting aside um, the unfortunate uh, appreciation of Drake and his music, <laughs> um, that's one connection. But the other thing was, Mo and his coach, they never talked about the workout until it was time to do the workout. Like nowadays in our concierge culture, we want our internet coach giving us a four-month plan to the day, emailed ahead of time. No shots to any coach who's on this podcast. That's not a criticism of any well-credentialed coach, you know, in the room. No offense, Okay, good. But Mo, these guys would like get all ready and then warm up, and then like go up to the coach after the warm up and be like, all right, so what are we doing? And I was like, whoa, these dudes are just like ready for whatever. And so what I realized is, ultimately at most level, or at a certain level, maybe after a sub elite level, you only know you're gonna do one of three things. And so you spend the night before laying back in your bed, going through the options of what each of those could possibly be, preparing for each one. So when the coach tells you what the workout is, you're ready to go, you've already prepared. I realize that's an incredible corollary for race day. Because if you've already cycled through all the possibilities before the race unfolds, then when those things happen as a matter of course, you've already prepared for them. And so, you know, note to the coaches and, and your six-month PDFs, pick up the phone to your athletes or send them a text or just try to make it a little more immediate, make it a little more visceral, make it a little more kinetic and, and, and crack it off in the moment and see what happens because that's going to foster that connection because that gives the athlete ownership of their own workout. The athlete then has more of a, a stake hold in their own work. You know, I like that. And I, 
I was listening to Mike Smith. Um, shout out. Genius. He's also from Central Massachusetts. I'm a little bit Central honest. Mass. Shout out to Coach Smith, uh, my Coach teammate, many years ago. But he had a line not too long ago. He said, "He's like, I'm as a coach, I'm sitting in the passenger seat. The athlete's got to be driving. I'm just telling you, hey, watch out for that rock in the road. Go left here. Take a right. But the athlete's got to take ownership and be driving the ship." I'm just here to make sure that I doesn't go completely off, yeah. you know, off the top of cliff. Exactly. I mean, when I was a, a music manager, I didn't go to business school. I didn't really come out of, like, any kind of business background. So I just kind of fell into managing these bands. But I, I really hung to this idea that it's about creating the context for an artist to pursue their best work. And I just carried that on to Black Roses. Like, Black Roses, say what you want about it, win, lose, or draw. It's about creating the context and the platform for people to pursue this dream of running. And how does something like that continue to evolve over the next few years? Well, if people stick with it, people generally get a little faster, people might get a little more ambitious even though they get restless as well. And so uh, rather than that cycle that you see of like hype and excitement and energy and injury and then coming back that you see with new runners, Black Roses in our 11th season, our, our fifth or sixth year, you see this culture that's started to be baked in and now I have to kind of feed that machine. You have, you know, and they're in the room here now, like these, these people who started off kind of like falling in and out of races and training for 10 days and then taking 15 days off and now people are figuring out what happens when you do it consistently and you got to keep feeding that fire you got to kind of be like okay cool now you've unlocked the consistency now you've unlocked really what it is and now what are we going to do with it and again even in my own group as a little tiny culture it's been fascinating to watch that culture set in right now it's, it's, it's really amazing to, to, to feel it you know? Yeah, going back to East Africa. Did you end up in Kenya after Ethiopia? I did. Um, I did go out to to work with um, the swoosh um, with uh, Jason Suarez. Jason Suarez is in the building. Not afraid to fail. Uh, amazing photographer. Check out his photography. Check out his photography. Um, so Jason and I went out to work with the swoosh to document um, a new innovation that we're going to see on Monday. <laughs> Um, we're gonna see it on people's feet. We're gonna see it. It may, maybe your own. It may be planted in their brains. I mean, I'm not gonna say it's footwear. It might be a microchip installed at the base of their skull. But good chance it's footwear. Um, so we got a chance to, to look at Kipchoge uh, speaking about this innovation and uh, and then document some of that. And then I also did get to work as um, a stunt couple for Kipchoge. Look nothing like it. Our ankles, the melanin in our ankles, and our calf structure. Almost identical? At speed. At speed. With a blur. When did we have a blur? Exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about Kipchoge for a little bit. You were fortunate enough to be out in Monza last May for the yes. Breaking 2 project and spent some time around him recently in Kenya. Just talk about the man and the presence that he carries about him pretty much everywhere he goes, whether he's on a race course or he's just walking around talking to people on the street. Um, uh, Elliot Kipchoge is um, another one of God's own prototypes. Um, there was this moment when we were out at the camp, the Global Sports Communication Camp, and Photographers had gone off into the woods to scout, and everybody was chilling out. 
And Elliot just brought this lawn chair over next to mine, and then just sat right next to me, and then just chilled and like pulled out his phone and just started checking his phone next to me. And we just like hung out in silence for like a bro, a, a bro moment, like for an hour. Just I was like, should I ask him marathon advice? Should I ask him? Should I ask him? And he just, it was like, we just went out as two dudes. You know what I mean? So that's incredible. Um, I do have a saucy piece of gossip, but I'll probably get killed for it. Share it with all of us here. So, the greater internet at large. Yeah. Kipchoge's in shape. You gotta realize I got crazy conflicted loyalties for London. Like, Mo is just like lived with Mo for three weeks. Then I got to see Elliot, who's an inspiration before. So, when Kipchoge crossed the line and Monza, like, I wept. It was. It was heartbreaking and excruciating um, to, to watch. Um, so there's this 40k route that Kipchoge runs. Uh, obviously, it's eight to nine thousand feet on dirt roads, rolling hills. And uh, in his group, obviously, he's got the best of the world. He's got uh, Abel Karui. He's got um, Jeffrey Camor. And then he's got a couple of young guys who, in the camp, they don't even really know their names. They're, these are just dudes from like the backwater, the backwoods. They're the unofficial punching bags. Yeah, except they're like better than anyone else in the rest of the world. So there's this guy named Wild West. Like, he just comes from, like, his town is so small, I don't even know if it has a name. And he's running around the track, and all he knows is like, he comes out with like the t shirt over like the long sleeve, and he's got some like, LA gear shoes on. I don't know what he's wearing. I mean, he's probably got some Nikes on. <laughs> and, and Patrick saying the coach is looking at him and he just says, they're like, who's that guy? And coach just says, that guy, he's he's Wild West. So there's this guy named Wild West who can keep up with Kipchoge. Just runs workouts with the greatest marathoner in the world. Like That's all he knows. I mean, he doesn't even know. So they go out on this 40K run and you know, the car is going. Karui steps off at a certain point. Jeffrey, who's training for that world half uh, victory, so he stops at 30k. And Wild West just keeps up with Kipchoge for 40k. 40k. This is the route that Kipchoge ran a month before Monza. And when we were in Kenya, he ran the same route with Wild West a minute faster. <laughs> When he was in sub two, well, he's in two hours. He ran a minute faster than he ran a year ago, getting ready for months. So, so what? If I'm reading between the lines here, what you're saying is Kipchoge is going to be hard to beat. I, I'm not saying that. I'm just, as they say in Flatbush back in Brooklyn, man fit, <laughs> man fit. Let's <laughs> go um, back to you for a little bit. You're how old now? 40? 40 something. 43. 40, 43. 40 years old. 43. You ran, I mean, you ran a half marathon PB three weeks ago in Valencia, 110 and change. You ran a marathon PB last fall, 233, I believe, in Berlin. Um, and you've been at this a while. You run how many marathons? 20? I think money's going to be my 25th marathon. So what's allowing you to be running at your best here in your 40-somethings. Um, I mean, you ran collegiately. You're not new at this. You've been at this for a while. You had a little bit of a break. Uh, I'm new to this. I'm true to this. Yeah, while you were pursuing the, the music thing. I mean, yeah. You had a little bit of a break. But you've been running a long time. You're all miles on your legs. Like, what changes have you made to your own program 
from maybe some, what you've learned from some of these people that you spent time with, like over the last year or two, that have allowed you to jump to that next level and make these games? Um, really interesting. Yeah. Some 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 answers are, are simple and not sexy, just running running more. Um, but ultimately, you know, like around 2015, I was doing my thing. I was running my like 245s, 240 marathon, a flat one, a hilly one, a hot one, a cool one. I was just running the same time, and it was cool. But like, and I haven't really told this to too many people. But I was I was kind of I was kind of bored. I was on the cover of Runner's World, and I was like, ah, this is kind of the end of the road. Like, I'm just like, I'm on the cover of Runner's World. Like, I peaked. I'm like, <laughs> there's a black dude with dreads on the cover of Runner's World. Like, my, but my job, we're done. Um, and then right after that, you know, a handful of innovations came out. Um, Martin Sports Fuel, uh, the Nike 4%, and Headspace as an app. And... Yeah, these sort of uh, marginal gains um, sort of re-inspired me and reinvigorated me to just tweak that final little percentage out of my running, which was actually the inspiration for first run. Like first run uh, in 2011, I, I ran the New York City Marathon without really thinking about it, stressing. I just come back from like a wild fashion week in, in Paris with Kanye and Virgil and like acting crazy. And I just went out in New York and like ran on a good vibe and got a hundredth place. And I was like, how did I do that without really stressing it? And so I've been interested in unlocking that vibe, but now we have the tools um, at our disposal. Um, whether it's you know rethinking our, our sports fueling, you know, and, and trying Martin last year at the marathon for the first time, I'm thinking. What if there's no wall? Like here, running and our running culture is predicated on the wall. Um, but what if the wall is just something to figure out and solve? What if you know unlocking the mental aspect isn't just you know Alberto Salazar finding a crucifix in a grotto? <laughs> you know, and, like it turning to gold on his on his on his. Uh, <laughs> On his, on his bedroom dresser, but like, what if, what if, like, there's actual steps? And, and obviously, Buddhism has been talking about it for thousands of years. What if there are actual concrete steps we can do to uh, increasing our mindfulness? And so all those things kind of came together for me to to really unlock another element of my own potential, and then share that with Black Roses, and then ideally communicate that as a writer with other people. So I've really been on a journey of of, of again taking what is rather uncharitably described around professional cyclists and, and, and certain elite athletes as marginal gains. What do marginal gains mean for us as regular people? What is Marginal gains mean for your nutrition and, and your sleep and your hydration on the day and, and your training in general. I'm interested in what marginal gains mean on a sofa. And how much would you attribute to, in your case, like, call it like, yes to hype? I mean, you've got people who are really interested in your journey, who want to support what it is that you're doing, who want to learn from the things that you're doing. How much does that motivate you when you're putting on your shoes every day and getting out there and putting in that long run, putting that track work out, you know, and, and make those call them not so marginal gains yeah. that you're looking for? Um, because I have been at it a long time and because I, I watched my dad run and I, I kind of grew up around running culture, there's no connection between my personal running and like whatever happens on social media or 
in my own house or in the rest of the world or even really with black roses like my running is just it's just inextricably linked to like whatever i'm doing um which is amazing because now i'm freed up to act totally crazy talk a bunch of trash on your podcast with a wild ego out of control and it doesn't like change what I'm gonna do in the marathon on Monday. So what I wanna do to talk about writing and share is my work as a writer and, um, and as a, a curator of photography and, and cultural experiences. The two are, the two are uh, inviolably separate, which is, which is special. Last bit before we wrap up here, tying this all back to the idea of running culture. What is its future? Where do you see things going here in the next five, 50, 50 years. When this running boom, this is like, but let's say the third running boom, right? When this running boom hit, you'd be hanging out in the streets of New York, and I, you know, I was kind of like in an early and people from my creative class who have, you know, worked, you know, run Supreme, all the all these legendary New York street brands, guys who are at Vice Media now. These we kind of came up together as a peer group in New York. Guys would see me in the street and be like. The first year, they'd be like, ah, oh, the running thing, it seems like a fad. And I was like, ah, oh, it's not really a fad. And then you'd see the guys the next year in the street, they'd be like, the running thing, it's a real trend, right? And I was like, I don't know if it's a trend. It feels like, what if it's a sea change? What if it's a, a consciousness shift? And so what I would hope for, and then now, you're going to see those same guys running the Brooklyn Half Marathon in, in May. So what I hope for is that running, is experiencing or is part and parcel of a consciousness shift and a lifestyle or value shift. Um, even though we're beset by so many challenges, um, politically, and culturally, in our own lives, in our bedrooms and our boardrooms, and in our inside our borders and outside of our borders. I would hope that running for our species is a tiny step forward um, in our evolution. Obviously, running was one of the things that precipitated our evolution 85,000 years ago. And I really am optimistic that the energy that you see on Boston Marathon weekend uh, might be bottled up and sold at top dollar. No, the energy that you're seeing at Boston Marathon weekend might be um, a small example of how we might reconnect as homo sapiens and, and make our way together. As they say, you know, say, I say, you know, I'll go there. You know, you, we, we can make the road by running. So I hope in my heart of hearts that's what we're going to do. Love it. I think that's a great place to put in things. Docs, um, we're going to be at Church of the Covenant tonight at yes. 5 o'clock. Yes. Uh, we are going to be re, well, not we, I don't really have a whole lot to do with that. I'll be hosting the panel, but our friends from District Vision will be re-releasing this book from Mike Spino called Beyond Jogging. Beyond Jogging. If, you, if, you, if, you, if you're adept at jogging, I see a couple friendly faces. There's a couple joggers in the room. If you're adept at jogging, come and check us out tonight because we're going to talk about Beyond Jogging. And our mindful athlete panel will do a little pre-race meditation. Yes. Knox, thank you so much for joining me. Right, thanks for hosting us. Where can listeners connect with you online? Your preferred channels? Um, I, I am exclusively on Instagram uh, at First Run. Um, and other than that, you can um, usually catch me at a, a reggae club in Brooklyn called Lovers Rock. Um, I'm there one Sunday a month with my colleagues uh, Jeggy. 
and uh, Mari, aka Miss Lonely Hearts, spinning uh, vinyl sets um, from 5 to 8 p.m. on a Sunday, which is the lowest kind of bar you can set for a DJ set. So come check us out Sundays at Lover's Rock from 5 to 8 p.m. Um, and come catch a bun. Shout out Tracksmith for hosting us. Um, I'm going to fill up a bag with a bunch of this gear for sure. So uh, shopping for the seven is just May. You heard? <laughs> My next guest here on round two of the Morning Shakeout podcast is Matt Taylor, the co founder of Tracksmith. He is responsible for. This whole mess that you're all part of right now, um, this beautiful mess that is the track house on Marathon Weekend. Matt, thanks so much for joining me yeah, on the show. No, no worries. It's uh, hard to follow up as the Knox, but let's, uh, let's jump into it. Whether he likes to admit it or not, he is a tough act to follow. I know, I know. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm really into obviously what you have going on here this weekend. The track house has been a madhouse of sorts for. I mean, this is the third year in a row. Two years ago, this was a pop up. Last year, you guys were in this space and we hosted a few events. This year, you sort of built upon that. Just talk a little bit about the importance of this weekend, Boston Marathon weekend, um, to the Tracksmith brands and what you guys are all about. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because we launched in uh, 2014. Uh, as an online brand, and we did our first pop-up in 2015 at the Boston Marathon. It was actually in this space, um, just the downstairs area. Um, so what was really interesting is when you're an online brand, you know, your relationships with your customers are all virtual, and it was the first time that we actually got to interact with people, you know, in the real world, and, you know, people got a chance to touch and feel the product and try it on and just meet the team, you know. Um, you know, people might have a certain perception of the brand, and then you actually get to meet some of the people behind it. Um, so for us, Boston has always been, it kind of felt like a little bit of our coming out party in 2015, and then we did a pop-up in 16, and then 17 last year um, is when we actually moved into the space full-time. So the, the track house is almost exactly one year old today. So the nice thing now is we've had a year to really be involved in the community in Boston. Um, Louis Serafini, who manages all of our uh, group runs out of the track house, um, you know, we've built up a, a good group of people here. So um, it's just such a great, it's such a great weekend for Boston in general. Um, I like to think that Boston is still a bit of the heart and soul of the running community in the in the country and maybe even in the world. It just has a really special place um, for a lot of people, and so uh, it's such a fun weekend for us. Let's go back to the beginning, specifically of your brand, Tracksmith. What was the impetus behind launching a, we'll call it a, a premier clothing line for runners? And you can correct that in your own way. Um, back when you did a few years ago. Yeah, so it's interesting because I was listening to what Knox was saying about, um, you know, talked a lot about culture, and really the the impetus was much more around culture and community than it was around, um, you know, apparel or footwear or anything else. And and I think what you know, I, I've been a runner my entire life, and I've worked in the industry for, you know, a, a decade and a half. Um, and what I noticed is, and what I was really interested in is sort of as the other brands were 
growing and getting bigger and bigger to sort of continue their growth, they had to make some decisions, either going into other sports, um, you know, looking for other distribution channels, and, and that's just sort of a natural cycle, but what happens is, as you try to reach a broader and broader group of people, sometimes your message gets a little bit watered down. And so when I was a kid growing up in high school and even early days in college, um, I felt like the, the culture of the sport was from the center in marketing and storytelling and advertising. Um, and that then slowly faded and it became much more about general health and wellness, which is great. Um, you know, the whole push of getting people off the couch to their first 5K is sort of like now we're at the point where everyone's off the couch, right? So we have everybody out there running, you know, the marathon has sort of become the great suburban Everest, you know, it's kind of everyone's running a marathon now, it's not, not necessarily what it used to be. And so the void was the culture, it was the storytelling and um, I, I, interesting tidbit from, from Knox that I had the same experience, um, you probably remember, but not a lot of people do. A long time ago I did this project, Chasing Tradition, uh, and I spent one week at 11 different NCA colleges, and I had the same experience where when people were writing in, they didn't care what the workout was that the athletes were doing, they wanted to know what the apartment was like, what the track house that the team was living in, you know, what they were eating, um, all of those different things, so I've always, everything I've done leading up to Tracksmithing, um, really like to tell the stories behind, you know, what you normally would see. Um, so anyway, so, so it started from a cultural perspective, community perspective, storytelling perspective, and then on the product side, I also felt like there was definitely a void. Um, I think five years ago, if you were looked at, um, you know, the men's apparel for, for instance, everything looked very similar. If you took the logos off of a lot of the gear, you really have a hard time knowing who's stuff was who's. Um, so I remember watching like U.S. Cross Country Championships years ago, and Adidas, and Nike, and some of the big brands, and all their athletes had all these, these blue tops, black bottoms, and I think you're right, if you took off the logo, you would know who's representing who. Yeah, and so, you know, our approach was obviously from a performance perspective, um, being a direct-to-consumer brand, I won't bore you with sort of the, the, the unit economics of what that means, but it allows us to use fabrics that are much higher quality, because we don't have to give up the margin to a retailer who's going to sell and market our brand. Um, we do that our, ourselves, so it gives us an opportunity to create really high-quality product, and then aesthetically, it's an opportunity to just do something a bit more um, classic, a bit more timeless, using colors that, you know, you already have in your wardrobe and that you feel comfortable wearing, versus sort of a power ranger look that dominated wearing five, ten years ago. This might be, come off as kind of a self-serving question for you guys, because of course the answer is obviously going to be yes, but have you seen that kind of, that culture that you're trying to promote, like storytelling, that you're trying to get out to people, have you seen it catch on um, through the things that you're doing digitally on your own website, and through your newsletters, through social, but also what you're doing on the ground here in Boston now that you have a home base established and people are coming in? Definitely. Um, and I think what's been, you know, really interesting, actually I was talking to Jaggy, I remember we did the pop-up here in 2015, and Jaggy and Knox and some of the other Black Roses people came in. Um, and it was so clear that something was happening in writing that was different and unique. Um, and to just sort of see not only them, but all the other sort of, you know, crews and clubs around the world that are popping up. We just went to the Speed Project and had a team run there. Um, and sort of some of the, the you know, um, 
experience that we had there, but also the other people we met who were there, sort of the um, the feedback that we got from people who didn't know the brand a year ago and didn't know, you know, a lot of people are finding out about the brand through the storytelling that we're doing. We have an amazing photographer, Emily May, um, which really has, I think, elevated the brand just from an aesthetic perspective that way. Um, so yeah, so, and then here in the in the trap house, you know, um, we're doing runs on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Sunday morning. Um, and anybody's welcome, but we run hard, you know, so it's not just come out and, and run an easy, you know, three mile run and, and, and be chatting the whole time. You know, we'll warm up over to the MIT, MIT track, and we'll do, you know, interval workouts. We'll go to the common, we'll do tempo run. Um, so some of that, you know, cultural, sort of historical, educational piece is starting to come through. Yeah. And just riffing off that, I mean, I would say in a lot of ways, you guys are, you guys are traditionalists. I would say you're a traditional brand, but you're traditionalists in terms of, um, you know, the, the sport that you're celebrating. Um, and you just talked about the speed project. You're going out that. That is a non-traditional running event. And there's a lot of things. I mean, the speed project, you know, there are a lot of things like that. These non-traditional events and gatherings, running crews that are happening and running now that are growing the culture and that are growing the sport. Like, as someone who's running a, a business in that space and who's trying to relate to a lot of people that are doing these things, like, what are your, like, kind of what are your thoughts as we say, like, we're trying to support the sport of running and the competitive side of it and races like the Boston Marathon have been going on for 120-something years, but how can those things play nice with things like the Speed Project, with these run-throughs, with like some of the non-traditional things that happen in this space? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question, and I think a lot of the, the rise of that, and I think people like Knox and, and myself and you are, are like-minded in the sense that the sport has been damaging itself for a very long time, and I think that's why some of these things are starting to, to pop up, and I think a lot of the attraction to them um, is coming out of that. And, and Speed Project, you know, um, what was really unique about it and yes, I think I'm a traditionalist, and I grew up in the sport and in its most traditional forms. Um, but what was really unique about it is, it's, in its heart, it was competitive. It was a race from point A to point B. And you know, our team battled with a, a team from France for 80 miles you know, through the desert. Um, we were trading off the lead probably 40 times in those 80 miles. Um, and so, yes, it wasn't a normal uh, track meet or a uh, race, um, but it was a race, and I think that spirit is something that is the glue to a lot of this work that we all relate to. And I think that's the thing that, you know, I think people are, that doesn't go away. People either want to be competitive or they don't. And I think people that, that do and they have that competitive spirit and they have that competitive bench, that's certainly the, you know, that's who we talk to. Yeah. I'm just trying to continue to support the sport and the culture as it continues to evolve. Yeah, it's funny. I, I wrestle with that personally because I've done some things in my career previously where naively thought I really want to change the sport you know and I've done these small things that have such a small impact um, and the reality is the sport is, is it's, a, it's, it's massive and it's bureaucracy and it moves very slow and so when I started Tracksmith in, in the back of my mind I thought I really do want to change the sport in a positive way but the reality is, we can't do it yet. We're still too small. We don't have enough leverage. We don't have enough influence. 
So we're doing what we can, which is great storytelling, you know, digging up these stories about the sport, um, building a community, celebrating the culture, um, and to an extent even the subculture of the sport. Um, and maybe down the road, five years, ten years down the road, we'd be in a position to do something more substantial to really try to push maybe things in, in a different direction. What's going on right now that's really exciting you personally, not even necessarily as someone who's running a brand in the space? Um, that's, a good, that's a good question. Um, I really, I mean, that's obviously tied to the business to an extent, but the retail landscape is really interesting. Um, you know, quote-unquote experiential marketing is really interesting right now. Um, you know, we've just sort of learned over the last few years the opportunity to be in front of customers, be in front of people um, is very powerful. And so, um, personally, but also as a brand, we're just paying attention a lot to sort of where are those things are going. How can we do, we've created this track house here in Boston, how can we do something like this in other parts of the country and other parts of the world? Um, so just sort of, yeah, watching, watching that space a little bit, um, I think is really interesting. And, um, and I guess the other one is a little bit just social media in general. Um, there's so much going on. Um, some some positive, some negative, and I'll just be really curious to see, you know, where things continue to go in social media. You know, it wasn't that long ago that, you know, brands were spending lots of money on Twitter and Pinterest. I was at a conference recently with a bunch of media buyers, and nobody's spending money there now. It's all on Facebook, Instagram. Is this, what's going to happen? You know, three years from now, will, will those things still be as hot? And it's really hard for personalities, you know, it's really hard for brands. Um, I'm just curious where all of that will sort of shake out. And just building off that last question to wrap things up, where do you see things going in, for the sport, culturally and competitively, um, in the next 5, 15, 50 years, as far out as you want to go? Um, I'll tell you what I'd like to see. I don't know if it will go there. Um, but I think what's um, what's happened with um, some of the sort of things maybe on the fringe, so adventure racing, color runs, um, ultras, these relay races. Um, like I mentioned before, the, the one thing in there that I think can, can be saved is the competitive aspect and that competitive spirit. And I think there's a huge opportunity for running to learn from that, not be upset that it's happening and maybe drawing people away, but learn from it and I'd love to see, you know, in, in five years or ten years where cross country becomes a thing that people do in the fall and through the winter, you know, and where indoor track is not just something you do in college, you can do it as an adult. Um, so the mile, another event think has huge potential to sort of um, bring people back. Because I think what's clear is the marathon has become a thing uh, that maybe doesn't have the same gravitas that it, that it used to have. And so people are searching for something different. And I think as a sport, we would we'll, we'll do ourselves a, a big service to just sort of not ignore that and let people go and try to find a way to cater that. So I think the event side of our sport um, has so much potential, um, but it's got to be done in the right way. And it's got to be done for, you know, not the elite. It can't be built for the elite athletes. It has to be built for the fans and, and participants. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me. I love what you guys are doing here. Thank you so much for hosting ShakeOut this morning and ShakeOut Podcast, first ever live edition. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Mark. And that's it for this episode of the Morning ShakeOut Podcast. If you enjoyed it and want to support the show, it only takes a few seconds to do so. 
head over to Apple Podcasts or whatever player you used to listen in today and leave a rating and a review. Simple as that. It helps other listeners find the show, which in turn grows the audience, which helps me to continue bringing on great guests for you to learn from and be inspired by on a near weekly basis. If you'd like to support my work directly, you can do so via Patreon at patreon.com slash the morning shakeout. Many thanks to all of you who have already made a monthly donation. It helps me to continue producing not only this show, but also my weekly newsletter of the same name, which comes out every Tuesday morning. And for those of you who had no clue that I even had a weekly newsletter, get on it. You can subscribe at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, and you will receive a weekly email from me. It comes out on Tuesday mornings. I write about running and a whole slew of other interesting topics, and I really think you'll enjoy it. That's all I got. So until next time, I'm Mario Fraioli, and thank you for listening to my podcast.